Man, thanks for being with us today. Hey, if you don't know me, my name is Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here, and we've been in a series called American Gods. The reality is we live inside of a culture where our gods don't, don't call themselves by the name of Zeus or Artemis. Now it's uh, things like technology and sex and money. And so we're in the series where we're just talking about the gods of our culture, and I think today's going to be really helpful for you. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it and head over to Luke chapter 10. Luke 10, if you're new to the Bible, Luke is going to be near the back half of the Bible in what we call the New Testament. That's a collection of writings about Jesus. And uh, here's the thing, if, you're, if you haven't been in church in a while and you're kind of wondering, man, do I belong here? I don't even know if I believe this stuff and um, I, I don't know what this is all about. You really do belong here. This is a safe place, and there's no question that you have that's off limits. So doubters, skeptics, you're, you're welcome as you are. We're really glad that you're with us today. Luke 10. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry about it. I've got mine, and we'll have the words up on the screen. But before we start, I just want to read this section uh, of Scripture. This is our teaching text for today. Luke 10. Pick it up in verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them out on ahead of them, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is out there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And, re- and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. And I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Now fast forward, go to verse 17. The 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. The word of the Lord. So uh, in 1991, uh, Madonna was interviewed by Vanity Fair And in that interview, Madonna said some really, really insightful things. She said this, I have an iron will, and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I pushed past one spell of it and discover myself a special human being, and then I get to another stage, and I think I'm mediocre and uninteresting, again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre, that, that's what's always pushing me, pushing me, because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. Now, since the 1980s, uh, Madonna has been globally known as the queen of pop. 
She's totally changed the, the face and the sound of pop, and probably no female artist has ever influenced that genre of music more than Madonna. Madonna's net worth is right at $550 million, which by the way, that's the highest net worth for any female, female entertainer in American history. And yet Madonna has this, this undeniable fear that she's not going to be somebody, that she's just mediocre and she's uninteresting. And that fear is what's driving Madonna to prove to us that she actually is a somebody. Can you relate to that at all? Can you relate to that drive to achieve and that drive to succeed? Today we're gonna be talking about the God of success and achievement, which if you haven't noticed is just a very, very widely worshiped popular God in American culture, uh, most of us live and breathe inside of the struggle of achievement and success. Now, you, you might be here thinking, I, I don't know if that's me because I, I just kind of work an average job. I'm an average person. I've got an average family. Don't tell them I said that. And just live kind of an average life. Like, I'm not someone that has a high volume of success and achievement. This is only something that those who are incredibly successful struggle with. And I'm not one of those people. I don't struggle with this God. So you might be sitting here with the temptation just to disconnect for for a minute because this doesn't feel like it's your world. But here's what I want you to see, that actually, um, as Americans, this is the air that we breathe in, is it not? That you and I live inside of what's called a meritocracy in many ways, and if you don't know what that is, it's this idea that those that succeed and those that achieve are the only ones that have value and dignity and respect. And, and something that's unique to American culture and the history of the world civilizations is that for, for years and years, people just kind of did their job. So if your dad was a farmer and his dad was a farmer and his dad was a farmer and his dad was a farmer, you would just be a farmer. And that was it. You didn't have any aspirations to achieve or succeed in these unique ways. But today, no matter who you are, no matter what job you do, no matter if you're a student or a young person or however old you are, there is a trajectory for your life that is headed for you already where you could map it out and you know exactly, I need to do this and this and this. If I want to be the boss, if I want to graduate, if I want to get this job, you know exactly what you need to do. There's a path to success for all of us. This is the air that we breathe in, and whether you realize it or not, culture is constantly telling you, if you want value, if you want to matter, if you want significance, then you have to achieve and you have to succeed. That's the world that we live in. Now, you can see this in a couple of ways, but I'll just, I'll just give you two of them. You see this all over culture, but here are two ways that this comes up all the time. You see this God of success and achievement in our language, our language is success-driven. I, I don't know if you've realized this, and I didn't until a friend from uh, Liverpool told me. He said, you Americans, your language is so violent. Everything is violent. Like when, when you want to compliment someone, and instead of saying, hey, you did a really good job, it's like, you killed it. You crushed it. You, you absolutely destroyed that thing, right? It's like bombs and like that's, that's the way that we talk to each other in our American culture. And he's like, you Americans, it's so violent. It's, it's, it's so like, just, you, gotta, you can't just do a good job. You've got to crush it. And here's what that reveals to us. It reveals that we live inside of a world that is kill it or be killed, right? If I'm gonna survive out there, I've gotta kill it or else I'm going to be killed. So we see it in our language, but we also see it 
and social media. And by the way, I'm not like against social media. I, I'm on social media, uh, but, but there are some dangers. And one of the dangers of social media is this, is that it gives all of us this idea that we can create our own fantasy reality where we are really successful and we've achieved a whole lot and, and we're gonna paint this picture of ourselves, whether it's true or not, and that's the picture that we're gonna put out there for everybody else to see. And it's really, really bizarre. It's driven by success and achievement. If I only knew most of you solely through Instagram, I would, I would envy your life so much, right? Uh, you travel all the time. You eat exotic foods. Your house is always clean. I mean, it's amazing. Your life on Instagram is absolutely phenomenal. It's filled with achievement and success. There's no problems there. The other day I was on Instagram and uh, I was reading someone's post and they captured one of those pictures where it's just like, I don't know how in the world you did that. I honestly think you faked that picture. It's so perfect, right? And then you found the perfect filter, perfect lighting. It's amazing. And then it's one of those with the long descriptions underneath it. Do you know what I'm talking about? Where it's like really long paragraphs. Of, it's like, what? It's Instagram, all right? Uh, li- limit yourself. But they're writing like a blog post. It's the new like, uh, like uh, MySpace or whatever. So they're writing about their life and it was beautiful. The insights into marriage, parenting, life itself, absolutely beautiful. And I remember reading that thinking, this person has to be a major deal. They must have thousands of followers. Like everybody's just dying to know what this person says. And I looked at the follower count, 120 people. It's like, who are we fooling? That's like your friends from high school and your family. Like that's, who are we fooling that we think that we can just carve out this world and look at how amazing I am. And but no one... No one really is that way. Instagram, social media, Twitter provide us with this ability to craft our own lives for viewers to see something that really isn't there. So how do you know if this is in you, this God of success and achievement? Um, Maybe you're like, I work at Joe Job. I don't really think this is me. How do you know that this is you? Well, there's some indicators I don't want to give you, and then we're going to jump into Luke 10. Some indicators that will reveal that this is a God that you hold closely to. Uh, Competition and comparison. Anytime competition and comparison are flashing red lights in your heart, that's telling you that actually what's driving your competition and your need to compete and and compare with other people is this God of success. If you get frustrated and devalued every time someone else is given a compliment, you worship the God of success. If you actually, uh, because of your achievements, you feel like you've achieved and done better than the people around you and you walk into a room with a little bit of pride and arrogance, then you worship at the feet of God of success and achievement because you are actually competing and comparing. The way that you see the world is I've got to get to the top and if anybody else gets there, then that's threatening my position at the top. Here's another indicator, workaholism. You work all the time, you, drag, you drive yourself and your family into the ground just for the sake of appearing successful, like you're achieving a whole lot. Uh, every time someone asks, how you doing? Oh, I'm so busy, I'm busy, I'm busy, I'm busy, right? You have this, this just unhealthy angst, frantic angst to achieve and succeed in life. Yeah, it's workaholism is actually being driven by this God of success. Laziness is another indicator And that's an ironic indicator, isn't it? You would think that lazy people don't actually worship at the feet of God of success, but here's what's interesting about a a lot of lazy people. What's driving a lot of people into laziness and apathy and disengagement is because they've tried to be successful and it hasn't worked. 
they've tried to achieve and they don't feel like they have achieved. And so instead of engaging into overwork, they disengage and they kind of uh, uh, just veg out. And I'm, by the way, here in just a minute, I'm gonna sell out the entire male gender. Uh, so I apologize to all the fellas in the room. But ladies, if you wanna kind of understand something about a, a lazy man, if you know or are married to a man who comes home every day and he sits in the, the easy chair, he, he plops down, he turns on Netflix, and night after night after night he watches TV over and over and over and over again, do you know what's really driving that most of the time? Most of the time, what's happening is beneath the surface, he is a profoundly hurt, wounded, shame-filled man that doesn't feel like he's accomplished much and he cannot engage, he's totally disconnected. So actually what drives laziness oftentimes is this desire to achieve and not being able to accomplish it. Here's another one, insecurity. You walk into a room and you lack confidence and you, you frequently experience anxiety about yourself and how other people are perceiving you. A lot of times what's behind that is this God of success. I want to appear successful. I want you to think of me successful. And then finally, deceit is a big one. Deceit is when you and I, we put forth this image that makes us look successful, whether that's real or not. We downplay our failures and mistakes. We upplay our, our upsell our successes. And the, the, the version of us that we're presenting to the world is really not the real us. It's one that is successful and who has achieved a lot. Worshiping the God of success. Is this inside of you? It's inside of me. Even if this isn't inside of you, there's the temptation in our cultural moment to just be this way, isn't there? Even if you're not actively worshiping the God of success, the temptation exists in your world. This is something that as you leave these doors, you will face on a day-to-day basis in our cultural moment. So how do we fight this? How do we, how do we actually um, think about the God of success and how does Jesus confront the God of success? I think Luke 10, in many ways, is one of the most helpful stories to confront our idolatry of achievement and success. Luke 10 is one of those passages that gets a lot of airplay in the pulpit. Uh, It gets a lot of pulpit time because it's a great passage to preach. You can preach about the mission of God and how the harvest of souls is there. It's plentiful, but we need laborers. You can talk about the kingdom of God. You can talk about uh, signs and wonders. You can talk about all these amazing things in this passage. But what I want to do is I want to look at Luke 10 with you through the lens of achievement and success. And so let me just set up the story. In this story, Jesus sends out the 72. Now here's my question to you. Who are the 72? And does anybody here know any of the names of the 72? Anybody know any of the names of the 72? No, nobody. Because no one knows any of their names. The 72 is this weird group of followers of Jesus because they're not a part of the thousands and hundreds but they're also not a part of the 12. There's some weird in-between group of people, not the 12, not the hundreds and thousands. They're just this generic group called the 72. We don't know anything about their past, anything about their identity. We don't know anything about them after the story. This is just where they show up in the Bible and then we often forget about them. Now let me ask, if Jesus were to show up to you and he were to say, hey, uh, I'm gonna invite you into my mission and I want you to do some amazing things. You're gonna do some profoundly powerful things, but no one's gonna know who you are ever. No one's gonna know your name. You're gonna have a generic group identity and most people, when they read about you, it won't even register in their minds that you're real people and they're gonna blow past the story. How many of you would love to sign up for that? 
Probably not me. See, the thing is about this group, it's so weird. They're just this unknown group of people. And what makes matters worse is when you understand how Jesus actually chose the 12 disciples, you start to realize that chances are the 72 had a bit of a chip on their shoulder. Let me unpack it this way. Like, uh, the way that Jesus chose the 12 disciples is not how you think. A lot of us think that Jesus was walking around doing ministry and then he like randomly pointed at some guys and was like, you, you, yeah, you'll do. Come here, you're my 12 disciples. And then his ministry started to expand and his influence grew and, and then all of a sudden all these people started being attracted to Jesus and that's where the 72 came from and then there's hundreds of people and thousands of people. No, 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 that's not how it happened at all. Look at this. In Luke chapter six, I'll just read it to you. We actually see the real story of how Jesus chose the 12 disciples. I'm gonna read this and I want you to paint this picture in your head like a movie. Luke six, verse 12. And these days, Jesus, he went out to the mountain to pray and all night he continued in prayer to God. Verse 13. And when they came, he called his disciples and chose from them, how many? 12 whom he named apostles. So paint this picture in your head. Jesus is like, all right, come here, come here, come here. Large crowd of people gather around and Jesus is like, I'm about to choose 12 people that are gonna mark my ministry and carry it on after my death and resurrection on planet earth. 12 people. He points to John. John's like, knew it. Totally, I'm the beloved. It makes sense, right? Peter. Peter's like, duh, like he wouldn't be anywhere if it wasn't for me, right? Of course, he needs, the, he needs me to, to make this thing happen, right? And then he goes down the list and everybody else is just standing there. Have you ever been picked last? The pain of that? Have you ever been picked first? The joy of that? These 72, they were just in the crowd. Peter, John, Mark. These people didn't get picked, Now, here's what's interesting. The 72, this generic group identity, have this weird opportunity now that Jesus is about to send them out on ministry. They have this weird opportunity to prove to Jesus that when he picked the 12, he probably made the wrong call, right? Oh, man, he's gonna totally regret Peter after I go out on mission. It's gonna be amazing, all right? So they start their ministry with a bit of a chip on their shoulder and a desire to prove something. Now, some of you might be like, oh, I think you're reading into the story. That's not in the text. Well, let me show you Luke 9. And this is the chapter right before Luke 10. Luke 9, 46. This is kind of an insight into the culture of the disciples. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Just pause there. Jesus is hanging out with them. And they're debating with each other. Is it me? Is it you? Like, I think I'm actually a little better. And like, they're debating with each other about who among them is the greatest. Already inside of this culture of the disciples was this desire to compete and to compare and to be successful and to achieve. And then Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, he took a child, put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. So the disciples already had this culture of competition and comparison and desire to achieve, and these 12 were specially chosen by Jesus, and the 72, well, that's just the generic crowd. Now's their chance. Jesus gathers them together, and he says, all right, 72, 
I'm gonna give you spiritual power and I want you to go out and I want you to live on mission and you're gonna be able to do some really crazy fun things and then come back and let's talk about it. So the 72 in their heads, it's like now's my time. I'm gonna go kill it for Jesus and I want you to see what happens when the 72 return. When the 72 return, this is the number one takeaway from their ministry. Luke 10 verse 17. The 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. In other words, Jesus, we have spiritual power. We had profound ministry success out there. You should have seen it. Even the demons were subject to us in your name. We killed it out there. What's Jesus' response to this thing that they say? Well, look at verse 18. Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. So encouragement, you've done great, right? I saw Satan fall down from heaven like lightning and then he rebukes them. He says in verse 20, nevertheless, don't rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. They come back with joy and excitement. You should have seen us out there. We killed it. It was amazing. And Jesus says, don't rejoice in that. Do not rejoice in that whatsoever. And he rebukes them for it. Now, why does Jesus rebuke them for this? Because obviously what they were doing was really, really great. Well, there are at least two reasons. The first is, I think that what was happening here is they're emphasizing power and success over people. They're emphasizing power and success over people. Here's my point. If you ever read the New Testament and you look at people that were demonized, people that were being harassed and attacked with demons, the way that the Bible paints that story and those pictures are very, very difficult, very painful, very tragic. There's a story of a little boy and he's, he's being thrown in the fire by demons and, and he's being harassed and attacked and his dad is literally concerned for his son's life. And he comes to Jesus begging, can you please get this demon out of him because he's, he's, he's gonna die if you don't. We see stories of little girls and, and other people that are, that are uh, uh, filled with sicknesses and diseases because of demons and all these things. And so what was happening here is instead of the disciples coming to Jesus saying, hey, you should have seen it. There's this little boy and then we prayed for him and the demons left and, and he's now okay. He's in his right mind. The dad was just sobbing. He was so thankful. You should have seen it. No, what they said is, you should have seen it. Even the demons submit to us in your name. We have so much power. They totally missed the little boy. Or you should have seen this little girl. She was sick and she was near death and she was racked with diseases and we cast out the demons and now she's okay. She's in her right mind and she's, she's perfectly healthy and the, her parents were thrilled. No, it's, you should have seen it. They were running away from us. We were killing it out there for your name. They emphasized power and success over people. Here's the second thing I think that was behind Jesus' rebuke. Jesus gave them ministry success for the good of other people, not to stroke and stoke up their own ego. And here's the reality here. Any success and any influence and any power that God gives you is never an end in itself meant to be terminated on your ego. It is always for the benefit of other people. And we get this totally backwards, don't we? And so what happens with these disciples, instead of realizing I've been given spiritual power for the good of other people, it was I've been given spiritual power. Now's my time to shine. Now's my chance to kill it 
for Jesus. They emphasized power over people and they forgot the whole reason of why Jesus gave them this power in the first place. He says in the beginning of Luke 10, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. I've raised you up, not because I want you to feel good about you. I've raised you up because there are people out there that are hurting, that need this reality. Here's the sad human reality for most of us, if not all of us. You and I can relate to these people, can't we? The 72 might as well be us because I see my own heart and my own struggle and my own desires and my own twisted motives inside of the desires and the motives in the heart of the 72. I think what's behind this is, if we're honest, most of us, when we were in our most formative years growing up as kids, we're not properly affirmed and, and we, we didn't really know who we were. We didn't have parents or caregivers that told us this is who you are and you're loved and you're affirmed. So what happens is a lot of us, we grew up with, with a lack of that and now we take this gaping desire that we have for affirmation and approval and to, to succeed and be somebody and we take that and we point it out at the world. So we enter our jobs and we enter our marriages and we enter our, our dating relationships and we enter, our, we enter our lives and we're holding up this giant mirror. You tell me who I am and I will be that. You tell me what I need to be to be okay and, and tell me, am I okay and have I done enough and have I achieved enough and have I been successful enough? We're holding up this giant mirror because we don't know who we are. And what happens is this weird twisting in life where all of a sudden life stops becoming about the good of other people and the, the reality of the glory of God and the furthering of his mission, and life becomes all about us. And all of a sudden, what happens when life becomes all about my ego and my desire to succeed and to achieve at all costs is this crushing competition begins to just entangle my soul. And this sad comparison takes over. Questions like this, have I achieved enough? Do they respect me? I wonder if, He's proud of me. Am I okay now? Achieve more, do more, acquire more so that she will look at me with affirmation. Comparison. We walk into a room, man, why did they get promoted and I got overlooked? Why did they get the compliment and no one said a word to me? Why did they get invited to the party and no one even sent me a text? And on and on and on. Crushing comparison and this sad competition that takes over our souls. Have you ever noticed how much good one can do with incredibly bad motives? Have you ever noticed you can have the worst motives in the world and do some profoundly good things in our world? And that's a scary, scary reality. There is a book called Three Cups of Tea. You may have heard of it. Three Cups of Tea, One Man's Mission to Promote Peace, One School at a Time by Greg Mortison. It's a fascinating book. Uh, Greg Mortison uh, gave the title of the book off of his experience in a village in the Middle East where if you have one cup of tea with someone in the village, then you're a foreigner. If you have a second cup of tea, then you're friends. And if you have a third cup of tea, then you're family. So he wrote this book with this title and it recounts his story, his own journey of uh, getting lost on his way down from climbing K2 and he stumbles across this village and he's just struck by the, the needs of this village, the economic uh, devastation and the, the education gap. And so he promises him, he says, I'm gonna come back and I'm gonna bring money and I'm gonna build a school. I'm gonna, I'm gonna take care of you guys. I'm gonna build schools all over, uh, not just here, but all over the Middle East. So he wrote this book 
and the book blew up. It became a New York Times bestseller back in 2006, and it was uh, on the bestseller list for four years in a row. In fact, it got so big that President Obama actually donated $100,000 when he won the Nobel Peace Prize to this man's organization. The only problem is that they don't think that he ever tried to summit K2. He was never captured by the Taliban and held hostage, which was a big part of his story, that he was actually captured by the Taliban and held hostage, even though it never happened. And most of the money that he was given and most of the money that he raised from his sales and traveling the world did not go to build schools in the Middle East. Most of it went into his own pockets. He was flying around on expensive jets, total financial mismanagement at every level of this man's organization. And he was filled with utter shame as he was outed for the deceit that he had brought. In fact, there is an investigative reporter that wrote an expose on this called Three Cups of Deceit the ugly side of the human ego. Now what's the fallout in something like this when life becomes all about you and your ego and your desire to achieve and to succeed? His co-author committed suicide by kneeling in front of a train. His daughter tried to take her own life due to the shame that she experienced and he almost died of a heart attack due to stress. When life becomes all about your own personal narrative of success, people people become supporting characters in a story that's all about you and they get the short end of the stick. This is what happens when you worship at the feet of the God of success and achievement. It's you that matters and everybody else is just supporting characters in your story. How do we avoid this? Because this is in me. This is in you and this is in our culture. We live and breathe in a meritocracy where you've got to earn and you've got to achieve and you've got to acquire and you've got to be someone and make something of yourself if you want to have a place here. Well, Jesus tells us actually how to avoid this. Look at what he says to the 72. He says, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice, what? Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Jesus says, don't rejoice that you've got success and power. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That's what you rejoice in. Now, here's what I found. A lot of us don't know what that means, that your name is written in heaven. Is it like Andrew Burkhart in the heavens, and I just, I feel better about myself now, right? Is that what's supposed to happen? Uh, What does it mean to rejoice that your name is written in heaven? And it's hard to rejoice in something that you actually have no concept of what Jesus is trying to say. Well, this idea of your name being written in heaven, another way to say it is having your name written in what the Bible calls the book of life. If you grew up in church, you probably heard of that. Have you ever heard of the book of life? Some of you, yep. Uh, Here's how I pictured the book of life growing up in church. It was like this giant dusty phone book. Boom, right? And when you die, you stand before someone and they go through all the names to see if your name is in there. And if your name's in there, then you get to go into heaven. And if your name's not in there, then you don't. So I used to have dreams about this as a kid, like that I'd die and I'd stand before Gabriel or whoever and and he'd be looking for my name and not able to find it. You know, he's like searching, you know, like scanning and I'm just standing there. Andrew Burkhart? Burkhart. B-U-R-K. Oh, it's in there. Okay, good. Okay, great. Thank you. So, and I get to go in. It's like, how am I supposed to rejoice in that? Rejoice that my name might be written in some dusty old book somewhere in God's closet up in heaven? How how does that make me fight against this God of success and achievement? Well, actually, the book of life 
is a central book in Jewish culture. Um, This isn't just like this imaginary book or metaphorical book. It's a real book. If you do some historical study of Jewish culture, the book of life is a deeply significant central book that told the narrative of any given community among the Jewish people. It did four things. I just want to quickly unpack this. Number one, in the book of life, families would leave a written record of a will. So if you were going to leave your land and all your possessions to someone, you would actually write that in the book of life. And so when you died, people would know what to do with your belongings. In the book of life, number two, uh, marriage covenants were written in. So marriages that took place in the community, you would write them in, right? In the book of life, peace treaties were recorded, So if you wanted to find out if you were at war with a neighboring uh, place or if you wanted to find out if you had peace between uh, two different tribes, you could pull up the book of life and you could look, oh, okay, we're, we're at peace with this group of people. And then finally, in the book of life, if someone joined the community, they were written in as full citizens with full rights, never to be deported ever again. What is Jesus saying when he says, hey, don't rejoice in your success and your power but rejoice that your name is written in the book of life. Your name is written in heaven. What does that mean? Here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, because of my life and my death and my resurrection, because of this good news that we call the gospel, because of this reality, um, all that I have is yours. I've, let, I've left a written record of a will, and when I died, you inherit all things that belong to me. Did you know that if you're a follower of Jesus in this room, because of Jesus, you inherit all things. Jupiter belongs to you. Why are you trying to be someone and achieve success? You are going to inherit the world. The book of life, marriage covenants were written in. Jesus is saying, I have chosen you as my bride. I love you and you belong to me. I am your husband and church. You are my deeply loved bride. We are in covenant together. In the book of life, peace treaties were recorded. Jesus is saying, because of what I'm doing, there is no longer any animosity or war between God and humanity. There's only peace. There's only peace. And then finally, when someone would join the community, they were written in as full citizens. What God is saying is, you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. You can't ever be deported. You can't ever lose your status. You can't ever get kicked out. You are a full citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Listen to this if you struggle with this God. Because of Jesus, you don't have to earn your place in this world anymore. Because of Jesus, you do not have to prove yourself. You don't have to compete or compare. You don't have to achieve a certain level of success or notoriety to fully belong. In Jesus, you are good enough. And in Jesus, you are deeply loved. In Jesus, you will never get kicked out. He's brought you in and he has given you all things. That, that reality has the power to set you free from the tyranny of success and achievement. When the reality of the gospel sinks into your heart, it can set you free from the tyranny of success. I wanna close by just giving you the Americanized narrative of Jesus. This is the Americanized narrative of the life of Jesus. And just hear all that I'm about to say in like a uh, movie trailer voice. That'll help you, okay? Defying all odds, Jesus was born of a virgin. Amazingly, he never sinned 
or gave into temptation. He was, success, he was a successful and hardworking carpenter crafting artisanal tables and chairs alongside of his father Joseph. When he was only 12 years old, he was so spiritually mature that he said, I must be in my father's house. After living perfectly, never sinning, he willingly went to the cross and he said, nobody takes my life from me, I'm laying it down. And then Jesus, after dying just three short days later, he rose from the dead. He defeated death itself. He ascended into heaven. And as he walked through the gates of heaven, all the angels stood to their feet and God the Father loudly shouted, this is my son. I'm pleased with him and I love him. And all the angels just ah, erupted in praise. You know the problem with that story? That's 100% not the true story of the gospel. Here's the real story of the life of Jesus. Jesus was born in a small town to a poor Jewish teenager. He spent 30 years of his life in total obscurity. Nobody even knew who he was. Before Jesus had performed one miracle or taught one sermon or lifted his hand to do one significant thing in his life, at his baptism, the heavens were ripped open and God the Father looked at his son and he said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And one of the most incredible things is from this point forward, Jesus lives his life from blessing and affirmation, not for it. He lived his life and his ministry, ultimately dying in shame on a cross. Yes, to rise again, but then to leave and for people to mock him and belittle him and think that he was a failure. Jesus did all of this because he was living from his father's affirmation, from his father's blessing, not for it. And that's the invitation that Jesus gives to you today. If you are in Jesus or if you want to be in Jesus, you no longer have to live for blessing. You no longer have to live for affirmation. You no longer have to have the most important person in your life make you okay. That God who created all things, the most important being in the universe, he looks at you and he says, I love you, you're beloved, and you're mine. And that drives out this tear.